Hi, my name is Will. Welcome to The Church Split, and this is part three of our King James Only series. Now, this here is important to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about Desiderius Erasmus, and I want you guys to understand who this man was and why it's so important to the King James Only movement and what you can personally do about it. Actually, there's not much you can do about it. The guy's dead, and it is what it is at this point, but maybe you can change your mind. So uh, here, Desiderius Erasmus, he was a, another Catholic priest. Now, here's the thing is most of these people um, would have, actually, they all probably would have identified as Catholic. And the ref reformers didn't want to break away. They wanted to simply to reform the church that currently existed. So you guys need to understand that, that in fact, Desiderius Erasmus, this man alone, he actually, uh, he defended the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, transubstantiation. He, he defended the whole, when I take communion, that it becomes the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. He defended that position, which is a very Catholic position, yet it's funny some people put Erasmus up on a pedestal, and it's like, well, no, as some Protestant reformed hero, and in some ways, yeah, he was great, but at the same time, he was still Catholic. So I think we, I think people sometimes, it's, it's really funny how oftentimes people cherry pick history, like, this guy is my hero because he did one thing I agree with, and it's like, when you ask about all these other things, they'd be like, oh, no, he, that sounds like heresy. It's like, well, that guy defended that. What? No, he didn't. Anyway, it is funny. I find it ironic. But anyway, let's keep going into this. So I wanted to de uh I want to deeply dive into Erasmus for a while on this video because this is a really important part of, of textual history with the King James Version. So he wanted, the thing is with Erasmus in 1516, he wanted to deeply correct the corrupted Latin Vulgate. As I mentioned before in my other video, they were saying that it didn't, the Latin Vulgate didn't even contain the gospel anymore. It becomes so watered down. So Erasmus is a central figure in the history of the King James Bible. So at, we're going to just kind of trudge through this. So Erasmus, he translated the first Greek and Latin parallel with them actually side by side. So in his first Bible, in his Bible, you have the Greek. Greek and the Latin and their parallel side by side on the same page. In order to avoid um, the corrupted Latin Vulgate, though, he actually rendered his own fresh one from less than a half a dozen Greek and Hebrew manuscripts in comparison to thousands we have today, which is an important point later. But he had about a half a dozen Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and he actually so not only did he compile them into a singular text uh, and compared them to, to each other and put them together uh, just for one book in a Greek and, in a Greek and Hebrew sense, but he also translated, uh, rever translated into Latin so that way he could have them side by side. So he basically gave a, uh, hit a reset button on the Latin. So Erasmus really focused on the importance of, Greek, of the Greek language and understanding what the Bible was originally written in. Now things to understand with Hebrew and Greek. Greek is, and Hebrew, so Hebrew is a lot more, I don't want to say watery as far as the language is concerned, flexible maybe. So some of their wording in Hebrew can have multiple meanings. It's a very deep language but because it's an older written language. It also has some, uh, and also ancient Middle Eastern, it also tends to be very fluid in certain senses. One word has a certain root and that root can change the meaning of various different wor words and even just the context can wildly change it. So that's that. And then you have Greek, which is, a even, which is an even more precise language than uh, English is. So you have like two total opposite ends of the spectrum here as far as language is concerned. But Erasmus was very focused on the importance of the Greek language. Uh, in a letter, he once said this, 
Latin scholarship, however elaborate, is maimed and reduced by half without Greek. For whereas we Latins have but a few small streams, a few muddy pools, the Greeks possess crystal clear springs and rivers that run with gold. I can see what utter madness it is even to put a finger on that part of theology which is specially concerned with the mysteries of the faith unless one is furnished with the equipment of Greek as well, since the translators of scripture in their scrupulous manner of construing the text offer such literal versions of Greek idioms that no one ignorant of the language could grasp even the primary, or as our own theologians call it, literal meaning. So basically saying the way people translate this is like the way is they're not doing it accurately when they're approaching the Greek. And in fact, they're doing so and they're construing it as he puts it in a scrupulous manner. So in 1516, Erasmus published what we call the Textus Receptus. Now I've heard, I've said that a few times, but the Textus Receptus is Latin for the received text. And now Erasmus, he didn't really have a lot of respect for the Pope, but, um, it, but he was trying to rush to get this Bible out. So he published this in 1516, trying to be the first one to really do this, but, to, but this was actually two years after the Complutensian Polyglot, say that 10 times fast, came out in 1514. So uh, there's another whole other uh, side by side, like this whole other translation, uh, co compilation, uh, translation, a compilation of the Greek text in the Complutensian Polyglot over here in 1514. And two years later, the Texas Receptus essentially came out. So as I mentioned, it had Latin and Greek side by side with each other. So this, when people talk about uh, the Texas Receptus being a Greek text or a Hebrew text, it's not just that. It's also side by side with Latin. And he said this regarding translational processes. This is Erasmus. Now, remember, the, the King James was translated from the Texas Receptus. So he said right here uh, about translational processes, he says, but one thing the facts cry out, and it can be clear, as they say, even to a blind man, that often through the translator's clumsiness or inattention, the Greek has been wrongly rendered. Often the true and genuine reading has been corrupted by ignorant scribes, which we see happen every day, or altered by scribes who are half taught and half asleep. Now that is some shade being thrown around, calling them half a half taught and half asleep, and he calls them ignorant scribes. But here's the thing, ignorant scribes have always been around. In fact, we're going to talk about that a little bit with the Anglicans who translate the King James, but they were actually not that fluent in the Koine Greek side of things. So a lot of ignorance is in scribal work, and that's okay because you're going to have that. People aren't going to be as skilled in it, but they probably should don't belong, uh, you know, Translating Bibles for the general public, okay? Uh, so, or it's also that they have been altered by scribes. And this has been something that's happened all throughout history because scribes go, ooh, it seems like this, what, when I'm copying this, oh, it seems like this is missing this, I'm just going to add it myself. Or, oh, you know, I don't think that this isn't in some of these, so I'm going to remove it. And so you get scribes kind of playing with some things once in a while. So, the thing is, the second edition of this text, actually, of the Texas Receptus, the second edition of this would actually be used heavily by Martin Luther later, as he translates into German. But due to the rushing of the text, so Erasmus was really rushing this text, trying to beat it, trying to get it out there, um, there were tons of errors in it. Like, it, uh, there was uh, Erasmus, I forget the words, 
that he said specifically. But basically, he was like, yeah, this is less than desirable, but it's acceptable for the public for me to publish it. But So right when he published it, he started working on a second edition right away. Uh, and that's because he knew it was an issue. So it's also worth noting uh, the fun fact that Erasmus could not find a full copy of the book of Revelation. And so the last portions of Revelation, he actually had to reverse translate into Greek from the Latin. And actually, he did a pretty good job. Like, it's kind of impressive when you look at it. You're like, wow, you went from Latin to Greek, and somehow you're pretty accurate with that. Well done. So remember, the Catholic Church looked upon any translation with, uh, with suspicion and with actually very drastic measures to take. Remember, they were, they're willing to kill people who are putting these into, uh, into readable languages, and they actually looked at the Greek and the Hebrew as something unnecessary and even heretical and punishable by death to dabble in. So the Latin, so Latin was the language of the church, the Vulgate was the Bible of the church, and God preserved his word in the Latin. That was their idea, the Catholic Church. So let me say this again. The Catholic Church says that, that Latin was the language of the church. The Vulgate was the Bible of the church. And God preserved his word in the Latin. Does this sound familiar? Let me just rephrase this, uh, use that very same phrase. The King James Bible is the Bible of the church. God preserved his word in the King James. And there's no need to revisit it. It's the exact same logic being used. Even though the people could not speak Latin, and many people today have a hard time understanding 400-year-old English. And I know the King James only said it was only a sixth grade reading level. Uh, yeah, well, concupiscence. That's in there. What sixth grader knows what concupiscence means. Do you know what concupiscence means? I'd be curious. So anyway, um, my point is, is that language changes. And that we have to be careful our strong doctrinal stances on things like this. But anyway, now, to compete with a Complutensian polyglot, Erasmus, uh, he, his printer, really did rush him trying to get this out. So he did. And when he rushed it out and printed it out as uh, he came... He published what's called the Novum Instrumentum, which is also the New Testament. Later on, he called it the Novum Testamentum. So he, it was like the second edition, I think he called that. So by his own words, like I said, it was a terrible rendition of the Greek text. So it was time to revisit it. And that's when the Testamentum came out. So in fact, to, so as I mentioned, they looked at dabbling. The Catholic Church looked at dabbling in ancient languages as heresy. And the Pope uh, could... The Pope ordered these people to be pretty much killed. So Erasmus, what he did when he was translating this uh, and compiling this, is he wrote a letter to the Pope basically asking permission to do so. And the Pope didn't get back with him soon enough. And so Erasmus was really sassy. If you read some of his letters, man, this guy was a sassafras of a man. But So what he decided to do was he decided to publish it anyway and hopefully not get killed. But when he did it, he actually dedicated the work to Pope Leo X. So the Pope, who, could, who said it to dabble in ancient languages was heresy and uh, was punishable by death, Erasmus put this together and dedicated it to him. And uh, apparently the flattery paid off because actually the, the Pope didn't kill him. It's just funny. It was a gamble, but he took it. So I just found that part in history to be hilarious. Like, oh man, this guy is going to kill me. I know. I'll dedicate it to the work to, in his name, and then he can't come back on me. And it worked. It's crazy. So understand this, though, that the main focus was retranslating the Latin. So there, here's the thing. Though Erasmus took the Greek and 
as something to be re rendered accurately, and he was very much into uh, making sure the biblical languages were good, his biggest focus was retranslating the Latin because the Latin had lost the gospel. So his biggest focus was cleaning that up because that's what most the most the um, clergy use. So as mentioned before, the translational work is complicated and it's hardly uh, simple. And it's hardly simple. Uh, and we can't just say, well, that was removed or this was added so so nonchalantly. So anyway. In the words of Erasmus, he said this about translating. He goes, you must distinguish between scripture, the translation of scripture, and the transmission of both. What will you do with the errors of the copyists? So, and that, here's the thing, he, is he brings a really good point. So there's the, tra there's scripture, which are the manuscripts that we have. And then we have the, uh, the translation of scripture, which is, you know, from one language into the other and the transmission of both and how they both got there. Like, okay, were these cop, how many copies of copies of copies are these and all these different things. So what we, and then he goes, what we do with the errors of the copyists and co and here's the thing. There are errors in copies, even in the majority text, there are errors. And how do we know there are errors? Or how do you know there's an error if they all have errors? Well, the thing is, is that there, where a lot of might have an error in one area, the next 500 manuscripts will have the right rendering in that one spot. So if there's a misspelling or a punctuation mark, which is the majority of the variants, then those there are just these minuscule little things that... Um, not to be really worried about. But if I handed uh, a whole class of about 50 people a, a chapter of a book and I said, copy it word for word, I will find errors in different peoples, but not everyone's going to miss the E and the in the same spot, right? So the, that's the idea of what happens with errors of the copyist. And that's what Erasmus was trying to say. What are you going to do about this? We need to talk about it. We need to compare and actually do our due diligence with the Catholic Church didn't want to. And oddly enough, Jerome, who was the one who translated the Latin Vulgate, was beaten down actually for altering the word of God originally. And what's funny, so he was beaten down for, you know, changing the word of God, Augustine was not thrilled. And then he made the Latin Vulgate. And then eventually the Latin Vulgate became the only thing that people would ever, ever use. And then Erasmus comes along and they tell him that, nope, you are beating, they beat him down for changing the word of God. And this is something that we see uh, that happened with attacking the Geneva Bible and then the KJV and blah, 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 on, on, on it goes. So this is what happens with people beating people down for translations and for overall putting things together, so to speak, when you're translating, you're compiling. Beating people down for this is simply what happens when you hold not just a ver when you hold a translation as nothing but the true, inspired, preserved, unalterable, perfect word of God. And this becomes deeply rooted in tradition. And it's something you have to be careful about and it's something we have to watch out for. And that is why I say a lot of times King James onlyism borderlines idolatry because your spirituality, your spiritual health and spiritual growth is based on your intellectual understanding and your uh, intellectual loyalty to a particular translation and not necessarily to the savior who preserved all the, all these manuscripts. So we have to be careful how, where we're putting this. So this, and it, traditional dogmatism only happens when we focus on such things and make such wide claims as this is the only word of God. So, uh, and I'm not saying that, by the way, that I'm not saying that you can't, that we don't have the word of God. I'm saying when you are saying that these, that 
you don't even acknowledge tra the translations or the fact that there can be other readings of this or maybe a more accurate way to say this. When you are doing that and avoiding that actively, you are contributing to the idolatry of the King James Bible or other similar things. So the next is, so let's continue the history lesson, okay? So now we have, maybe you heard, remember these names, Martin Luther and William Tyndale. And Martin Luther hardly needs an introduction. He kind of got a head start on all the other reformers. And on October 31st in 1517, took his 95 theses and nailed them to the Wittenberg church door. So here's the thing. He, to fast forward, he used Erasmus's second edition of the Texas Receptist. He took his second edition and translated what we call the Luther Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into German. And remember, he's using the Greek and Hebrew from the Texas Receptus. What is a Texas Receptus? It is a Latin and Hebrew Greek side-by-side -side compilation of half a dozen manuscripts. So you have half a dozen manuscripts compared critically and then compiled into one book. And then we're using that compilation into this translation. This is not unheard of. In fact, you might have heard of the Nestle Allen text. That is one of those compilations where people took a bunch of things, compared them, compiled them of what's, of what's accurate, and then put them in a book. So then we have William Tyndale. He wanted to use the text to translate it into English. So he wanted to use this particular uh, Texas Receptus to translate it into English and is the very first English translation in history. This is another misunderstanding. A lot of King James only is, but the King James Bible is the, is the very first English translation. It's not. Okay. Long story short, he succeeded and the Tyndale New Testament was printed in 1525. Okay. So now he's continuing on and he succeeds in printing this Bible. Later on, the entire Bible of his that he put together was finished and translated by Miles Coverdale. Miles Coverdale is a very big name to understand. And he finished his work of the English translation in 1535. And now, so basically Tyndale had put together most of the Old Testament and it was Miles Coverdale who ended up finishing it. So then, then we have this wonderful man called King Henry VIII. And King Henry VIII and the bishops uh, and everyone, they, they took everyone they could find and uh, they burned them and as punishment for owning a Tyndale Bible. So this Tyndale Bible, King Henry VIII, because it was an, now remember, King Henry was Catholic at the time. And I, that's important that I say at the time. He was Catholic, so anyone who owned something in English or dabbled in the, uh, in the ancient languages could be killed. So we had a, all killed. He burned all the Tyndale Bibles. And actually, to this day, there's only two, uh, two original Tyndale Bibles around. So this continue, But the thing is that as he did this, trying to discourage the public from get, getting the English Bible, it actually only sparked more curiosity from the people. It's funny how that works in church history. The more you try to beat down the church, the more the church just continues to grow. Anyway, Tyndale was eventually burned at the stake in 1536, and his famous last words were, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And this becomes an interesting point later. So anyway... Now we have Miles Coverdale, who we talked about, and then this guy named John Thomas Matthew Rogers. Well, we'll just call him Rogers, okay, because I'm not saying all that over and over again, sorry. So as mentioned, as mentioned earlier, Miles finished the transaction of the Tyndale Bible on October 4th of 1535, okay, also known as the Coverdale Bible. So the Tyndale Bible uh, is mostly attributed to the New Testament, and then the Coverdale Bible is the full compilation of all of it. But uh, you, they're kind of, you can kind of use Tyndale Bible interchangeably there, but whatever. So Rogers, this new guy, he went on to translate another English 
translation in 1537, most commonly called the Matthew Tyndale Bible. And you may have heard of that one before. Now, we have this other guy, like I said, there's a lot of people, this other guy named Thomas Cranmer. And Thomas Cranmer, he hired Miles Coverdale in 1539 to translate the great, what we call the Great Bible. And this is the first English Bible that was authorized for public use. And by the way, the reason why it's called the Great Bible wasn't because of the great translational work, but it was because it was 14 inches thick. That is a, that's a big Bible. And there were seven editions that came out of this, seven editions that came out of the Great Bible. King Henry VIII was the man who actually had Tyndale executed, remember, for putting together the Tyndale Bible. And now he was the one who authorized the Great Bible in English. So this is major hypocrisy. So the guy who had him burned at the stake had his own English Bible. So the guy he, so the very crime he burned somebody for, he is guilty of. And but why did he do this? Why did he do this? It was for political purposes. So some people go see. Uh, um, his eyes were truly were open. No, that's not what happened. King Henry VIII. This man is as petty as everyone else in the Reformation. So this guy, he has the Great Bible translated for political purposes. Why? Because he wanted to marry his mistress and divorce his woman that he was with, but the Pope refused to end all the marriage. So he thought he'd retaliate by breaking off from the Catholic Church and marrying his mistress anyway. This man also had two wives, and he executed two, he executed two of his wives, I should say. He executed two of his wives. So he's very warm and fuzzy, burning people alive, killing wives. He's a great dude. So he was the one also who established himself as the very leader of this new church called the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church. So King Henry was the one who started the Church of England, and it was and it was not for real. It wasn't for biblical reasons. It wasn't for spiritual reasons. He broke off because he wanted to be able to have a divorce, and the and baby couldn't get what baby wanted. So he told the Pope basically to shove it and started his own church. So then, because he knew that Rome hated the idea of having the Bible in everyone's everyday language, he thought he would spite them by creating the, having the great Bible translated. Like I said, there is lots of pettiness. So anyway, later on, of course, he died, because everyone dies, and King Edward VI took over. But of course, he dies, and then this lady you might have heard of, there's a drink named after her, uh, Queen Mary, maybe known as Bloody Mary, came on, and she, when she took over, she wanted to bring the church back to Rome. So she essentially wanted to get rid of the England ch English church and become Catholic again. And in 1555, she had Rogers, remember that guy, Thomas, Matthew, whatever, Rogers and Cranmer both burned at the stake amongst other reformers and Protestants. And this was many things that she did. I mean, she killed so many people, all for being Protestants. And this caused a huge group of people to flee the church. And not just to flee the church, but flee the land of England. And so they landed in different places like Scotland, Switzerland, and all this stuff. But that brings me to the next person. So since we're talking about people who left the country, that brings us to this guy named John Fox. During this time in Geneva, Switzerland, they welcomed these refugees running from Bloody Mary. And John Fox is the author of the very famous book of 
the Fo of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And he basically records all the horrible Protestant deaths that were going on during this time. And then this other guy comes on the scene. You may have heard of him before, but John Calvin and John Knox, and then also Coverdale, they were determined, they come on the scene, they are determined to make a Bible for further purposes for the public use. So remember, because now they, they are now exiled, essentially. So the Vulgate is owned by Rome, and then you have uh, the Great Bible that is owned by England, and they were like, it's time we make a Bible for people here, since now we, we're going to be killed if we go back. So the Bible was published in 15... So this Bible was published in 1560. They finished this Bible, and it was with a group of people, not just, it was not just John Knox and Coverdale and John Calvin, it was a group of people, and this Bible was called the Geneva Bible, and this Bible is a huge Bible in, in history, one of the most beloved Bibles of all time, and who can blame them when you really look at the theologians that were behind it? You can't really blame people for this. So this was done by a group of people at that same time, and they all translated from the Texas Receptus. So again, the Texas Receptus is a pretty popular thing to use, but mainly because it was the only compilation Greek and Hebrew text that was available. So they had one that was like, okay, this is fairly decent, it's fairly reliable, but it was only from a half a, like a half a dozen manuscripts, and it was still pretty good. So uh, the Geneva Bible, let's talk about the Geneva Bible for a second. This was the first Bible to actually add chapters and verses, so that wonderful convenience you have today, there you go. But also because of chapter and verses, we have a lot of verses ripped out of context, so I guess it has its own issues, but whatever. So also, so there was a, also dozens of marginal notes in this thing. So uh, you would have your Bible, and then on the sides, you had all these different notes of different translations, and then the theological thoughts on it. Uh, this is where John Kelvin wrote a lot of, you know, his idea of basically of tulip, the depravity of man, uh, you know, the... Uh, the limited atonement, all these things. So the, so this is really where the Geneva Bible actually was largely a Calvinistic Bible, but it was also very popular. So also, so there are dozens of marginal notes, and it, as I mentioned, they noted other translational options here, textual variants, things along that nature. Now, it's funny, because this is what the Geneva Bible had, all these marginal notes of textual variants and stuff, and those textual variants and those footnotes and those marginal notes are criticized by many King James only as today in modern Bibles. They go, so the Geneva Bible, which preceded the King James, had all these types of things in it, and that was revered for it, and now today we have King James Onlyists who attack that ideology, because they're going, well, how can you, you know, yeah, they reduce this verse to a footnote, and they're going, no, they, it's just, you know, maybe this text has XYZ in it, this one didn't, so we added this here, we have a marginal note here for you, and it's still available to you, it's just based on our recognition, we didn't put it in the text, because most likely, it actually wasn't there, but just so you know, it, here it is. So, that is the logic there, I'm not going to get into that right now, that will be for another video at another time. So, this was the preferred Bible for over 100 years by Christians, so the Geneva Bible was used for over 100 years by Christians, and it was majorly preferred. Again, sounding familiar. So there were over 144 editions of this Bible. That's a lot of editions, by the way. It just kept getting, you know, the editions, 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 and, you know, they just kept modifying and, uh, I think, improving it probably, adding other footnotes maybe. So the Geneva Bible itself, here's what's funny, though. The Geneva Bible itself retains over 90% of William Tyndale's original English translation. So I find that kind of funny. So the Geneva Bible is only 10% off from uh, Tyndale's version, which is the Great Bible, essentially. Um, so the Geneva, in fact, remained more popular 
than the King James Version until decades after its original release in 1611. So the King James came out in 1611, and the Geneva Bibles stayed the most popular and most faithful by all scholars alike for years. And this is what's important as well. So again, when you see all these different Bibles that have come, Tyndale's, uh, you know, Thomas Matthew, then you have Geneva, and you have all these different Bibles that have come out during this time. And then suddenly, through this timeline, we go, King James, that's the one. And, and not even acknowledging the translational processes of each one and what, where they all came from even. So this was, all, and also, what are the chances that we were, that you're, we're able to just be able to pinpoint that's the one that God intentionally preserved after, out of all these? All the other ones are whatever, but this is the one. It's just bizarre. So this was also the, so this was the first Bible, the Geneva Bible was the first Bible to actually make it to America. And it was actually the Bible of the Reformation. So the pilgrims and all that that came here, they used the Geneva Bible. Eventually, Queen Bloody Mary died. <laughs> the wicked witch is dead. And uh, Queen Elizabeth took the throne. And you guys probably heard of her. This allowed the reformers actually to move back to England because she was actually friendly to them. And much to the pain of the Anglicans who were there, when the, these Protestants came back, they were forced to print the Geneva Bible because they loved their great Bible. And they and remember, the Geneva Bible had all these marginal notes, and the Anglicans did not like that. And it was, uh, and in fact, the, those notes were actually against the institutionalized church, since the marginal notes were actually largely Calvinistic and. A caused a lot of controversy. So the Anglicans finally printed a new edition of the Great Bible to compete with the King James Version, I mean, not the King James Version, to compete with the Geneva Bible in, 18, in 1568, also known as the Bishop's Bible. This Bishop's Bible actually never gained any traction at all, and the Geneva Bible continued to soar. So the Bible's... Um, so this Bible uh, was revised in 1602, the Bishop's Bible, and is known as the rough draft of the King James Bible. And now keep in mind that the Apocrypha was also included in the Great Bible and the original 1611 King James Version. So now let's hop into the big one, the King James I of England. So upon Queen Elizabeth's death, Prince James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England. And the Protestant clergy approached the new king in 1604, and they announced their desire basically to start a new translation from the, from the you know, they had the Great Bible, then they had the Bishop's Bible, and they're like, no, we want to do another one basically to compete with the Geneva Bible and to better represent the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and to remove all these controversial marginal notes and only have like reference notes, like uh, you know, uh, which you have probably in a reference Bible where it tells you where other you can find other things. So this uh, this new translation was to replace the Bishop's Bible, which was first printed in 1568, and they knew that the Geneva version had won the hearts of the people because of its excellent scholarship, its accuracy, and the exhaustive commentary that came along with it, much probably like you know, the study Bibles you have today. They're very popular, so it was kind of hard for them to go here to resist this. Also, again, they wanted something to represent the Anglican Church. And also, fun fact for you, there was other things in the marginal notes I forgot to mention. They proclaimed the Pope as the Antichrist in it. Um, and all sorts of shade was thrown at the Catholic Church in the marginal notes. So it's really funny because so these reformers were, as I said, they were very sassy. Lots of blood in the history of the Bible and lots of sass, okay? So essentially the leaders of the church desired for this Bible, uh, a new Bible for the people with scriptural references only for word clarification and cross-referencing. So... 
What's funny, though, is that many Reformed Presbyterians today, uh, Reformed churches and Baptist churches, who all subscribe to Calvinism or Calvinism light in many ways, trust the Anglican church's translation of the KJV, because that's the thing. This, This whole... The Bishop's Bible was the rough draft of the King James Version, and this was the Anglicans of the Church of England wanting to translate this thing, and now they are doing so. So it's funny because a lot of people, the very reform, the very people who hold on to the doctrines of the Reformers don't even hold on to a Reformer's Bible, because actually it would be the Geneva Bible that would be the Reformer's Bible. I just find that a, a fun, ironic little point. So there were about 50 scholars who, get, who got together to translate the King James Bible, and they worked on it from 1607 to 1609. So it's about a two-year project of 50 people working on it. This translation proved to be the ultimate translation for quite a while. I mean, nothing could hold a candle to the King James Version. They used the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, even the Rhymes New Testament, which is very Catholic, um, and they obviously used the Texas Receptus uh, as their main source, which is put together by that guy we talked about, Erasmus. So in this, there was typographical errors in Ruth. So in the King James, in the original King James version, they had a little typographical error in Ruth where it said he instead of she, um, and it became known as the he Bible or the she Bible, which is kind of funny. Uh, there's a few times that happened in history where like one of them uh, was called the Bridges Bible, Bridges Bible or whatever. So this is good times. But anyway, so in 1611, the pulpit Bible was finally published, this big King James version and it was 16, 16 inches tall, which definitely made the Great Bible seem smaller in, in retrospect. But this Bible took revisions and decades to finally surpass the Geneva Bible. And that's the irony of, of um, one holding to one over the other, is the fact that they held on to the Geneva Bible for so long, people wouldn't let go, and over time, finally, King James takes over, and nowadays we have the King James, and everyone hates the other versions. I just find it really kind of ironic and kind of funny. So... But these revision, but there was multiple revisions to the King James. That's what people don't understand. The version you have today is a 1769 version. It's not even the 1611. It's hard to get a hold, a hold of a 1611 version without spending hundreds of dollars. And I found some for like, yeah, there was one set I found for like $35,000. So it's really hard to get them. Um, but many Protestants use this uh, King James, uh, the King James exclusively, and it's not even a Protestant translation. It's from the Anglican Church. And uh, in fact, these Anglicans actually killed many Reformers. So also some of the things like people will criticize of some of the translators of NIV. I think one of them, they talk about always being gay and all this, and they, they criticize the like, yes, the gay Bible. <laughs> But what's funny is that there's a lot of rumors about King James I who gave the order for the King James, and there's a lot of talk that he very possibly was uh, a little frisky with the men, so to speak. So I, I just, I, again, uh, contradictions and hypocrisy everywhere. But many, many today are largely ignorant of their own history of the church and unaware of the Geneva Bible, which is textually 95% the same as the King James Version, so uh, interesting enough, but 50 years older than the King James Version, and not influenced by the Roman Catholic Church with the Rhymes New Testament at all, and that the King James translators admittedly took it into consideration. So it's just really interesting. Also, in the first edition of the King James, it actually was missing some of the verses, like um, you know the one in First John where it talks about the the Trinity and all this stuff. There was a lot of things that were not in that first edition that King James only as today would have burned it alive for, like like we see them doing today. 
And it took 250 years of the King James's own existence for another translation to come out in the 1880s to even come in, in, in English at all. So to compete against it. So, I mean, 250 years is a long sneaking time, but also means a lot of shifts in culture. So this is known as the English Revised Version. You may have seen this in on shelves even. You can get an English Revised Version, but most likely you'll have what it came from. So also it's worth noting that the versions in print today of the King James Version are actually, as I mentioned, the 1769 Revised Oxford Editions. And then finally, the, and remember, it included the Apocrypha because the, and the Apocrypha wasn't really moved in Protestant Bibles until around uh, the 1880s. So the Apocrypha, the Catholic part of the Bible, was still kept in these Bibles. So I just find it funny, again, that, we, that they attack these Bibles for the modern translations for having all these different influences when their Bible alone had a lot of these influences. This is our history, guys. We have influences. We have things that we're connected to and things we're attached to. So anyway, this is best for Christians to be honest about their history, right? So anyway... Now we have modern translations, okay? Let's just quickly burn through these, and then we'll be done with the history of it, okay? So we have the ERV in 1885, which is the English, uh, finally, the England finally retranslated the Bible uh, from the King, uh, instead of just the King James, and had the English Revised Version. Uh, the New Testament was finished in 1881, the Old Testament was in 1895, and the Apocrypha happened afterwards. Um, so the ASV, also known as the American Standard Version, was published in 1901. And this one, I, I, my, my dad actually had an American Standard Version growing up, but this one was a precursor to the, the NASB, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible in 1971. So this one became extremely popular. The NASB became extremely popular until it was um, in America. And most scholars today still consider the NASB to be the most accurate word-for-word -word translation available on the market. Yes, even compared to the King James. The King James is actually very poetic, and it uses some dynamic writing, and there's some parts where it actually gets a little liberal with the text just to create a more of a colorful picture of the thought. Um, and we'll talk about that in some of our objection videos. But by most scholars today, the NASB is considered the most accurate word-for-word -word translation of the Bible. And it is criticized largely for its accuracy mainly because it makes it clunky to read because it's so focused on being literal and specific that it makes it a little clunky. So then, uh, that of course, that happened in 1971. So two years later, we have the exact opposite happen. So we have one that's super literal and clunky. Then we have the opposite happen, which is the new international version, the NIV, which jokingly people call it the non-inspired version. So I find that funny, but whatever. It uses what we call a dynamic reading. Now the difference between dynamic reading and literal reading that we're gonna talk about, literal reading is just that, it's literal, it's word for word. Dynamic is more thought for thought focus and it's more trying to create a, a, an easier way to read it that creates a more of a dynamic approach to make you more interested in reading it because it's more interesting. And so it kind of flows off the tongue better. It's a little bit more fluid. It really did, uh, it focuses less on a word for word, but more of a phrase by phrase, okay? Which is why if you ever read the NIV, especially when people want to criticize modern translations, they criticize the NIV the most, it seems like, because they're like, this, it removes this, it removes that. It's like, yeah, the point of it was to, was almost a hot and cold difference between the clunky NASB and now they're trying to do that. Now, here's the thing is that despite its issues, um, it's easy to read at a junior high level and has become the highest selling Bible in America today. 
And most junior high kids and uh, young kids, it's a really good place, I guess, for them to start with new converts where are not dealing with a lot of other things uh, that can come along with studying the scriptures. So it is usually welcomed by young ages and new converts primarily, but again, it's a thought for thought, not a word for word. But then in 1982, we have this other thing called the NKJV, the New King James Version. New King James Version was really trying to just cash in on those King James onlyists and by removing the these and the thous and trying to add the use and just that's it. Problem was that it wasn't a big enough change for copyright. So they had to make further changes, which now the King James, many King James only advocates criticize it. And many of them call the King James, the new King James now just a commentary of the Bible as opposed to the actual Bible. And again, Remember, we have multiple Bibles in history. Keep in mind, we've talked about multiple Bibles leading up to the King James, and now we have multiple Bibles coming after the King James, and we go, nope, that's the one. It's interesting. And then, obviously, in 2002, we have what, the one I use on this program, which is the English Standard Version. This version actually pulls from multiple textual references, too, not just one particular vein of text, which, again, we'll talk about the vein of text in another video. And it mixes uh, dynamic and literal readings, and it's kind of the powerhouse between the NIV and the NASB. It's like, we're not going to sacrifice accuracy, but we're also going to make sure that things are more dynamic. Now, granted, it was... It was uh, translated by more of a Calvinistic approach, so there are some. Mm, there are definitely some. <laughs> there are some translational parts like, "Oh yeah, you definitely took some liberties on that one." But the Anglicans did the same thing, and they had their own theological biases in the King James, which I'm going to create a list in another video. So there have been so many Bibles throughout history, guys. There are so many Bible translations throughout history, all with different dates, and we will continue to see more come out, especially as languages change and we discover more texts. And so here's the thing. The King James came from the text Receptus, which had less than a dozen manuscripts. And now we have thousands. Some say we have about 25,000 New Testament manuscripts alone to compare to. And I've even heard when you include all these things, that's up to 55,000 manuscripts that we can compare and pull from to be able to make sure that we don't have errors. And that, you know, I don't know. Just the whole point is that we have so many things to pull from. It's absurd to just go that those half dozen from this particular vein of text, remember, from a particular vein of text, are the most accurate and the only ones to go by. Well, we have such a plethora more to compare to than they ever had. I bet Erasmus would have a heyday if he had access to all the things we have now. And so we have more to compare to now than Erasmus could have ever dreamed of or that Martin Luther could have ever dreamed of, etc., and the further irony here is that even the King James translators were not King James onlyists. Yeah, okay, ready for that? In their often left out, their document called The Translators to the Readers, I encourage you to read the full thing, they state this, and bear with me here. But how shall men meditate in that which they cannot understand? How shall they understand that which is kept close in an unknown tongue, as it is written? Except I know the power of the voice, I shall be to him that speaketh a barbarian, and that speaketh shall be a barbarian to me. The apostle accepteth no tongue, not Hebrew, the ancientest, not Greek, the most copious, not Latin, the finest, nature Nature taught a natural man to confess that all of us in those tongues which we do not understand are plainly deaf. We may turn the deaf ear unto them. The Scythian counted the Athenian whom he did not understand the barbarous, so the Roman did the Syrian and the Jew. Even 
as Jerome himself calleth the Hebrew tongue barbarous, belike because it was strange to so many. So the emperor of Constantinople calleth the Latin tongues barbarous, though Pope Nicholas do storm at it. And so the Jews, long before Christ, called all other nations Lognazim, which is little better than barbarous. Therefore, as one complaineth that always in the senates of Rome there was one or other that called for an interpreter. So lest the church be driven to the like exigent, it is necessary to have translations in a readiness. Translation it is that openeth the window to let the light that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel. That putteth aside the curtain that we may look into the holy place that removeth the cover of the well that we may come to the water even as Jacob rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well by which means the flocks of Laban were watered. Indeed, without translation into the vulgar tongue, the unlearned are but like children at Jacob's well, which was deep, without a bucket or something to draw with, or as that person mentioned by Isaiah, to whom, when a sealed book was delivered with his motion, read this, I pray thee. He was fain to make this answer, I cannot, for it is sealed. Notice how he goes, all these languages are considered barbaric, barbarous in his words, and it is important that we actually use the proper language. He was, they, I mean, these people were not King James only. And notice how it says, it is necessary to have translations in a readiness. And if you, and these, are the, these are the translators of the King James. And they're saying we ought to have them in the readiness. And the issue is, is that people want to say we can't augment it from 400 years ago or we can't retranslate it or you know, buffer it in any way. Well, 1769, really, remember? But you're still calling 400 some odd years-ish into question. And it says right here that it is necessary to have translations in a readiness, which means they ought to be coming out regularly. Why? So that way they're not in barbarous tongues. That way they are in a, a tongue that is easy to understand. And he goes that way, and he talks about the translation, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel. Because the full shell and the kernel within is the full word of God. And what is a translation but the kernel inside? It's like, okay, here's your general meaning, and you don't get the full shell because it's a translation. It's a little complicated, but man, you can still eat the good part. So I hope you understand that there is a basic timeline here to understand in Bibles, and that there, and how many Bibles did I mention in this alone? And what are the odds that only one of those is the true, inspired, and preserved Word of God? And especially a truly inspired, preserved Word of God that's not even prophesied in the Bible. Think about that. In the King James itself, you cannot find a prophecy about the only King James Bible. You have to read words about God, Jesus Christ saying that he's going to preserve his word, that not to jot any doubt or tittle. You have to twist that context into fitting the King James, which I could just as easily twist that into the Book of Mormon. It is important that we don't do that. We respect the context. There's not a singular verse that prophesies such an important Bible, and I find that interesting. And then also... The fact that we don't acknowledge that the very translators of this said that we needed regular, we need a regular translation at the ready. Why? So that way people can avoid the barbarous tongue and they can understand the word God in their own language. So this is just one tiny little part. And here's the thing, like I said, I was a King James onlyist. 
And I was actually writing a kid, a kid in jail, and I, was, I called myself more King James Preferred at this point. And I was writing some kid in jail, and he kept responding. He responded back to – I sent him two letters. He responded back to letters. And both times he was asking me for clarification. What does beseech mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? And I'm like, I'm trying to disciple this guy in jail, and I'm playing vocab lessons on things I don't need to be playing vocabulary lessons with. And once I switched to the English Standard, it actually was very effective, and he came to church and everything. It was great um, once he got out. But the whole – whole point here, guys, is that there is a lot more to this. And throughout the history of the Bible, we see that no one was ever King James only. Uh, people more preferred the, the Geneva Bible and uh, other Bibles before that. So be careful on what doctrines and what ideologies you hold on to and how you shift those things, how you shift the scripture to fit those ideologies. Remember, scripture is the authority, and you can't be confusing scripture as the authority as a single singular translation. It's a circular logic. It's this whole all down throughout history. This here, these were all not as good, and then suddenly this one was the best one that ever God inspired it, God preserved it, God whatever, and it's here, and now the rest are all terrible too. And therefore, this is the standard by which I hold all to. All versions will be held to this version. And you can't do that because guess what? If you compared the King James Version to the Geneva Bible, you'd find some major differences. And the Geneva Bible to the Tyndale Bible, you keep finding major differences. Even in different editions of the, of the King James Version, you'd find major differences. And it's because we are ignoring the true history of how amazing it is that God preserved his word. And he didn't just preserve it a little. He preserved it exponentially with thousands of manuscripts. And what we're doing is that we're limiting it down to one little English source, one English translation from one compilation of the Texas Receptus. That's what we're doing. We're, God preserves it so exponentially. And now, and then what we do is we're narrow, we're just bottlenecking it. And then we're actually hurting our argument for preservation of scriptures. And I'll talk more about that in another video, but I want you guys to understand. So anyway, this has been my final video on this part of the series, which is the history of the English Bible. I hope it was helpful for you. Hope it, I was clear in my thoughts and I hope the editing goes well. Cause I think I had some audio and, uh, uh, camera issues, but we'll see. So anyway, my name is will please like comment and share these videos get them around help us grow and uh if you have any questions comment below or email us at the church split at gmail.com and my name is will mentioned again and have a good day this has been the church split